Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Wrong Kind of Christian podcast. I'm your host, Megan Martin. Today we are, um, well, we're currently digging into the book of Hebrews and you've caught us at the tail end of our study. If you're looking for an on-the-go, in-depth Bible study that's easy to follow along with, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Every week we tackle a new chapter. So if you haven't been with us from the beginning, I highly suggest you go back to the very first one because so much of it builds, you know. Hebrews is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I have loved going through this study. My goal is to always look at the author's original intent and find practical application for our lives today. So I think many of us have been surprised to find that in some ways, we're not all that different from the Hebrew Christians the author was originally speaking to. Last time, we walked through the Hall of Faith chapter, looking at uh, those of that many of us consider to be faith giants and taking inspiration from their stories. But this week we're moving into chapter 12. So it just happens to start with one of the most quoted plastered all over t-shirts and bumper stickers verses that there is. And it also happens to start with one of my favorite words. So let's dive in Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. If there were ever a call to action in this book, there it is, right? Therefore, throw off everything that's holding you back, get rid of all that sin in your life, keep running the race to heaven. I mean, You know, I get why it's quoted so much. Like it's motivational, right? It's inspirational. We we just finished reading about all of these people who remained faithful, though none of them were perfect. People who stood like firmly on the promises of God, even when they faced some of the cruelest of human ridicule and torture. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to be counted among those with that kind of faith. So he paints this picture for us. In my mind, I see it like I'm standing there maybe facing some of the difficulties that come with living a faithful life. And that great cloud of witnesses, those mentioned in the hall of faith, stand around me in solidarity and encouragement, cheering me on while I stay steady on the course. It actually reminds me of something that happened when I took my youth group to um, summer camp a couple of years ago. I'd like a pretty wide range of age groups, like seventh through 12th graders. So, you know, it's a, it's a wide uh, maturity level group there. So, one of the activities that the camp does every year is a um, is a 5K run or a one-mile fun walk. So let me tell you guys, this, this was not an easy course. Lots of big hills up and down um, all over the campus. And it was a, it was a fairly large campus meant to hold 6,000 kids. Every one of those 6,000 kids was there that summer um, during that week. And, you know, so it was pretty packed. It was definitely not for the beginner runner. I happen to have a couple of boys in my group who were like serious cross country runners and they made it their goal to run the race and like place in the, in the first 10 people. And, and they did that. I mean, pretty amazing to me because I'm like, I don't even want to do the fun walk, but, but here's the part that meant the world to me. 
they they stayed with me on the sidelines cheering on the rest of our team um, that chose to do the fun walk and and the other runners. However, there were two of our girls that chose to do the 5K. When the boys that had finished the race so quickly saw our girls coming up over the top of the last hill, they ran back up to the top of the hill and ran next to them to help them finish the race, like encouraging them with their words and their actions. It was really, it was really heartwarming. And that's the kind of encouragement that we're getting from this great cloud of witnesses that this writer is telling us about. Now, I feel like I need to take a moment here to say that I don't believe that there are people in heaven watching over us, like like we're in a stadium um, watching a game, you know? I think it's more like God's given us their stories and we can see that they too ran the race and were rewarded as faithful. And we should take that as encouragement to keep going when we're struggling. I think that we have angels that watch over us. And we, and we talked about that back in Hebrews 1. And I'm sure that they're happy when we're staying the course, but they haven't walked this life on earth, you know? This verse is specifically about those who've walked this earth as part of mankind and held on to God faithfully. So it's more of an, if they can do it, I can do it kind of encouragement. I do think that they may just give you a fist bump when your race is finished though. The next part of verse one, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now that's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? Almost like everything that hinders may not be sin. I've talked about this so many times with friends and read about others who have had this struggle. Sometimes we have choices to make in life. One of those paths is the one that God wants you on. And the other may not be a bad choice, but it's not the best choice. Jason Castro talked about this in the latest I'm Second book called I Found Love. He had the opportunity to continue working with a band or or follow where he felt that God was leading him, which wasn't with the band that he had been working with. And he chose to be faithful to where God was taking him. And he has no regrets about that decision. Sometimes throwing off everything that hinders may be things like societal, parental, or friend expectations. I mean, we're thinking about that word hinders. When I think of that word, I think of something that just kind of hold you back, you know? What's in your life that is holding you back from God? Whatever that is, throw that off. And the sin that so easily entangles. Gosh, isn't that the truth? Sin is so easy to entangle. Some sins can be easily avoided, right? It's not like, it's just not a temptation for you. But often, obviously, sin is tempting, right? And sometimes sin, often in our world, sin is even celebrated. Be careful to throw those off. Don't be sucked in to the comfort of sin. It's temporary. It's false. It won't sustain you. Only God can do that. And because he will sustain you, make sure to push the sin out of your life and continue the race. The last part of verse one says, run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. I really like the translation that says, run with endurance, the race that is set before us endurance, you know, it draws a picture of like an unhurried patient running, like not taking any breaks or allowing for any distractions, but a strong stamina that keeps going. In the past, we've compared this race to a marathon, not a sprint. And we know it's going to be a long race, but we move at a pace that makes progress, right? Holding steady. So get rid of everything that holds you back and all the sins that have tried to entangle you. 
You don't need that weight holding down your pace and keep going, steadily making progress towards the finish line. But the writer doesn't stop there. So verse two says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So do everything that we just talked about, but then there's a final step. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I feel like this would be a common sense kind of thing to do because if my eyes aren't on him, I don't think I'd be able to run this endurance race at all. And and maybe that's why the writer puts it in here. Do all those things, but don't forget the most important step. Fix your eyes on Jesus. In this hall of faith, he's like, he's the goat, right? He suffered through the cross for the joy of what was to come. And to be fair, it's a bit more than just fixing your eyes on Jesus. The Greek actually implies an intentional looking away from other things and setting your gaze upon Jesus. Charles Spurgeon makes a really good point about this thought. In fixing our eyes on Jesus, we turn our eyes away from everything else, including the great cloud of witnesses we just read about. Those faithful people can't become the focus. Angels can't become the focus. Your family, your friends, work, hobbies, traditions, and customs, none of that can become your focus. Jesus, just Jesus. And speaking of just Jesus, the writer says in verses three and four, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Man, these people, like they must have been dealing with some serious, intense discouragement. We've talked about it before, but just a reminder, they're dealing with intense scrutiny and very harsh treatment by the people who were supposed to be their people, you know? So in order to encourage them, the writer, like after pointing them back to Jesus, reminds them of all that Jesus went through while he walked this earth. He affirms them, yes, you have had struggles, but you have not yet shed blood like Jesus did. Have you ever felt like you were going through something, struggling with something in your life that no one else could understand? Well, Jesus can. Remember, one of the reasons that Jesus is qualified to be our great high priest is because he walked this walk. So he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Take heart and find comfort in the camaraderie you have with Jesus. And it's it's a true camaraderie. Remember that we're called sons and daughters of the king along with Jesus. Chapter 12, verses five and six say, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who just doesn't understand why you may be enforcing some kind of consequence in them? In my house, we we have a few teenagers. Have you ever had to discipline a teenager? But why? I promise I'll do it later. I'll do it tomorrow. Or like the personal favorite in my house, it seems, is why are you being so aggressive? Well, aside from the part of me that may come out from time to time that says, I'm being so aggressive because you didn't listen the first 10 times. The real reason I'm disciplining you is because I love you. And I want you to grow up to be a decent person who will be a productive member of society. Guys, don't be the teenagers that need discipline in God's world. 
When we started this journey into Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians were being rebuked for still needing milk and not solid food. It seems like they've moved into the teen years here with this section. They just simply don't understand why God is allowing them to go through hard times. And we live with this today too. There have been some amazing Christians I've watched walk through some of the hardest challenges imaginable in life and come out of it fully trusting that God's will was best and good. But I've also seen the other side of that, right? People who've gone through much less, but complaining much more. Verses 7 through 11 say, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again. My greatest growths in Christ have come after the hardships. And no, it's not pleasant. It sucks, right? But if you cling to God during those hardships, if you allow God to sharpen you, to mold you, to grow you during that time, you'll come out on the other side so connected to him and you'll find that it's worth it. Verses 12 through 13 say, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So basically, the writer is saying, get ready. Get ready, because yes, there will be hard times, but he's given them every reason to take heart and be encouraged. And so he says, now do it. Be encouraged. This, therefore, really is a call to action. It's a time for you to take all of this and apply it. This writer doesn't just tell them to be encouraged and then move on. No, now he takes some time to give them practical application for their lives. And that is something that we can easily put into place in our lives too. So, which, you know, I, I truly appreciate this. Sometimes pastors get up there and they tell us live godly lives, but they don't really tell us how to live that life. And this pastor, he's making sure that there's no question. Verses 14 through 17 say, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance, his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Have you ever known someone who was dealing with real discouragement? Often we see them pulling away from everyone, including their main support systems. We see them hiding away, wallowing in the discouragement, scared to put themselves back out there again. This writer knows that discouragement makes us mess up our personal relationships with other people and with God. And so he tells them, don't give up on people. Don't give up on God. Make every effort to live in peace with people. Don't be quarrelsome just for the sake of being quarrelsome. Don't be mean. Don't be full of hate and bitterness and make every effort to be holy. Don't lose sight of your relationship with God. Don't give up on your prayer life. 
but keep reading the scriptures. Stay connected to God. If you miss this one, you don't get to see the Lord. And I know that's blunt, but that's what the writer said, like just straight up without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And the writer warns us to not let others fall short of the grace of God. Don't confuse that with Romans 3.23, where it says we are all sinners and have all fallen short of the glory of God. No, this says don't let anyone fall short of his grace. Don't let anyone return to those legalistic roots that they came from. Don't let anyone miss out on God's forgiveness. So don't let bitterness overtake you or those in your community, in your church. And it's so easy to let bitterness rule in our lives, isn't it? Because really bitterness comes with something very personal, right? My husband and I have dealt with this one personally over the last few years, especially him, but because I love him so much, it greatly affected me too, you know? He had put all of this work into something. We're talking like hours, days, months of work, money, his reputation, just everything, you know? And he was able to, along with some partners, make this very big thing into a success. But as it kind of often happens, I think there were some jealousy issues from some, another person in that, in that core group and jealousy that my husband was getting just attention, I guess, for, for the work that was being done, even though Justin had always said, you know, I have partners and these, these people did this work too. It just didn't matter. That jealousy, like the bitter root, it just snakes itself through the group and out into the public due to some of the actions of that other person. And my husband, you know, he had to pay the price for that. So with that came a whole other temptation to bitterness, this time on our end, you know, it, it like it took a while for us to just be able to let it go. And it still sometimes kind of rears its head and we have to kind of like remind ourselves that this, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? Let it go. You know, we have to try to wish them well and mean it. And, you know, bitterness, it's such a fickle, deep rooted emotion. And the writer knew the havoc that it would cause. And so he, he warns them against it. Don't let it tear you away from your church community. The writer continues to talk about how to live holy. Don't be sexually immoral and don't be like Esau who gave up his birthright for some food. When I was first reading this, I thought, well, okay, so I'm not really sure how these two things are related enough to be in the same sentence. But I went back to a, um, a Greek exegetical text to try to help me understand. And so what we're seeing here is that people are so quick to give up holiness in the heat of the moment, you know, like for a moment of pleasure. And sexual immorality is anything outside of a man and a woman together in marriage, right? But knowing that doesn't make the temptation go away, does it? These Hebrew Christians were facing sexual temptation just like we are today. They might not have had like direct access to recorded porn, but they were surrounded by the temples of false gods whose main form of worship was sex, prostitution. Sex before marriage is a temptation for most. And I can't imagine that just started in the last century, right? So avoid sexual immorality. Don't give up the reward that comes with a fulfilled marriage covenant for a moment of pleasure. And Esau... Esau gave up his birthright for some soup. So I'm assuming that must have been some pretty good soup. Let's be real here. It's not about the soup. It was the fact that Esau was willing to give up the reward for immediate gratification. Guys, hear me on this one. We live in a world that thrives on immediate gratification. I can't really think of a strong enough word to describe our dependency on immediate gratification. It's it's at the core of our beings now. Don't give up your reward. Don't give up God's grace for a single moment of immediate gratification. It's not worth it. 
Look how quickly Esau regretted his choice, but it was too late. And and really, let's be clear here. It's never too late to come to God's grace while you're still breathing. Esau's problem was one of those heart problems. He didn't really repent. The next few verses are spoken to remind them of how blessed they are to be able to approach God where he is. Verses 18 through 21. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. This passage is taken from um, Exodus 19, where it describes what it was like for the Israelites coming upon Mount Sinai, where all of these events happened. Terrifying, right? The writer says, no, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So he's saying we're in a different place. I read a description somewhere that said the law came to Mount Sinai. The cross came to Mount Zion. And that's a great way of describing the differences. We're covered by the blood of the lamb and we can walk forward knowing that we're welcome. But with great blessing, sometimes comes great danger. And so the writer continues with a little warning here. Verses 25 through 27. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Make sure you don't turn your back on God, guys. Listen to what he said. Listen to what Jesus told us. And finally, in verses 28 and 29, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. What a promise, right? God's kingdom can't be shaken and we don't have to fear instability. This idea of a consuming fire sure does paint a picture, doesn't it? Have you ever seen a fire overtaking everything in its path? That's God. He moves out over all the earth, all the heavens, and he covers everything. Only those covered by the blood of the lamb will remain. Maybe this has been a rough time in your life. Maybe you're still dealing with guilt from a past decision. Don't let your guilt, others' opinions, others' words, hold you back. Repent and come into God's grace and be holy. Be encouraged. Know that you are welcome here. Next week, we're moving into the last chapter of Hebrews. It's kind of an overview of all that we've talked about during these 12 chapters and some continued encouragement to keep going. I hope you all have a blessed week and I'll talk with you next time. Bye.